actually really excited to get into this. We're talking Doctrine and Covenant section two. We have a world-renowned scholar, probably knows more about Joseph Smith than anybody else. I'm excited to learn from him. So. Me too. Can't yeah. wait to see him. And we're really looking forward to learning from you all today. But before we get into our discussion, maybe we can follow up on what we read. Let's do it. So we're in Doctrine and Covenants 2 today, uh, as well as in verses 27 to 65 of the Joseph Smith history. In these passages, after Joseph Smith's first vision, he recounts some of the mistakes of his youth. He's worried, and he prays for forgiveness. So Moroni also appears to Joseph Smith, as we know, and he actually tells Joseph that God has a work for him to do. He's also told of these ancient records, and he's told about the Hill Cumorah. Four years later, he's able to retrieve the plates, as we know. So there's obviously a lot of things that we can address, um, but we're going to focus in on three things specifically. The first is Joseph Smith's early history. What lessons can we learn about Joseph Smith and also apply to our own lives? We're going to learn about Joseph Smith's character and what really qualified him to serve in God's service and also about the restoration of the sealing power. So maybe uh, before we get into it, we're interested in hearing from you. Um, did anything in these passages stand out at you? Did you find anything significant? Something that really stood out to me was how brave Joseph was. He was persecuted and made fun of, and I'm sure he doubted himself, but he still followed the Lord. Yeah, and thank you for setting us up so nicely to talk about this discussion. Maybe we can start out with Joseph Smith's early history, and to help us out in our discussion, we have a very special guest, a world-renowned scholar, um, Richard Bushman. Yeah, we are so excited to have Richard here. Hey, Richard. Hi. How's it going? Very good. Nice to be with you, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard, you for being here, yes. Thanks for joining us. So Richard is a world-renowned historian. He's a professor of emeritus of U.S. history at Columbia University, and he is also the author of Rough Stone Rolling, uh, among many other books that he has authored. So Richard, again, we can't thank you enough for being here. We appreciate your time and your expertise today. Happy to be part of the show. Great. So I know that you've spent more time studying Joseph Smith than, than perhaps anyone. Uh, what impresses you the most about this early period of his history? What's the most valuable lesson you've taken away from, from studying um, his life? Well, what impresses me is that uh, the revelation and guidance came in bursts. He receives his great first vision. Then there's sort of a blank space where he's very much on his own. He uh, gets into a few little sins of some sort or another praise, Moroni comes to him, and he's given another great revelation, but then he goes to the hill and he's forbidden to take the plates that he thought it was his job to get. So he's sort of left in confusion. So it may be just necessary in the economy, the things that we not be guided every second in every step we're to take, even if we're the prophet, but that we are given a direction and we move in that direction, then we have to carry it on by ourselves, sometimes in confusion, sometimes in, in the darkness. But uh, we have to go on until we get the next uh, direction that shows us what the next step is. Yeah, and I wonder even if sometimes in those periods of silence and darkness, maybe he started to doubt his own uh, visions, maybe think in his mind, you know, did I actually see this? If, 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 if I did, you know, where is the Lord? Yes, actually, that did happen. When he went to the hill that first time, reached in to get the plates and couldn't get them, he had this shock saying, maybe it was just a dream. And Richard, I always find it fascinating. There's, there's this line in verse 28. He just says, having been forbidden to join any of the religious sects of the day and being very tender years and persecuted by those who ought to have been my friends, 
and to have treated me kindly, and if they suppose me to be deluded to have endeavored in proper and affectionate manner to have reclaimed me, I was left to all kinds of temptations. And I, I, you know, I thought to myself, who are these people that he's surrounded by uh, that are so critical of him at a young age? Such a young, tender, 17-year-old boy. Yeah, well, he, he got involved in a little debating society. Uh, he had pals around the town. But he also, after the first vision, as we know, went to see a, a minister. And I think he may, in that passage, be referring to that minister. We should have ministered to his soul and helped him uh, interpret and understand his revelation. Instead, he was told he was uh, crazy, that he shouldn't uh, believe in what he had seen. So he sort of whiplashed around by people around him who should have been his counselors and friends. And one of the things I love about this history too, Richard, is that Joseph Smith doesn't really try to hide his weaknesses and imperfections from us. He's remarkably forthcoming about him. And in verse 28, for example, he says, like Barbara was saying, I was left to all kinds of temptations. I frequently fell into many foolish errors, displaying the weakness of my use and fo foibles of human nature. I'm sorry to say I was led into diverse temptations, offensive in the sight of God. It seems to me in my reading, he wants us to know he's not an imperfect, he not, he's not a perfect person. Perhaps there's a lesson there. Like the fact that God can work with somebody in their weakness and that, uh, you know, Joseph Smith, he had his, his, he had his imperfections, but he was trying the best he can. For me, that's comforting because that's, a, that's an ideal that's attainable for me, right? I can recognize my weaknesses and uh, still trust in God to, to do the best he can with me. And that was characteristic of Joseph through his life. He never claimed perfection. He always knew he was a flawed human being. Richard, I, I really appreciate that comment, and I, I appreciate your comment as well on asking those questions and diving deeper into the life of Joseph Smith. And we're going to ask this audience, what is it in these verses that have actually been helpful to you or that stand out to you and why? Um, I love how in this verse he said that he had full confidence in, you know, getting another manifestation mm -hmm. or in having God speak to him again. Mm -hmm. And, and that word confidence reminded me of a verse in section, Doctrine and Covenants section 121, where it says that our, our confidence also can wax strong in the Lord's presence. If we are doing the things that are right, if virtue is garnishing our thoughts all the time, and if we are trying to live our best life, then we can go to Heavenly Father in prayer in confidence. Mm -hmm. And just like Joseph Smith felt that he had full confidence in going to Heavenly Father in prayer, we too can have that same experience. Excellent, thanks. I, Richard, I, I have a question for you on that. It was in regards to that comment, she was talking about the confidence in reviewing the history and studying deeply the history. I'm, I'm curious to know about your thoughts on Joseph's confidence. Was he, was he confident from this age of 17 throughout the rest of his life or were there moments of maybe confusion or lack of confidence? What did you see in your research? Revelations came um, pretty steadily to him, but there were gaps. There were periods when uh, he just couldn't get guidance. He received word from Jackson County in August of 1833 that the saints had been driven out of what they hoped would be their Zion, which was his premier goal at that moment to create the city of Zion, for three months he just labored, could get no light, confessed he just didn't know what to say. And then finally in December, uh, Oliver County came down after having been with Joseph for a while and said, uh, the Lord has spoken, the heavens have opened. 
the revelations did come, and he knew eventually they'd come, so he was patient. He just waited. Think of him in Liberty Jail having to wait through that long, cold, smelly winter for uh, God to give him some light. But uh, eventually it did come. Richard, I, I actually have one more question, if I may, and, and it's the female in me that can't help it. Joseph is talking about his, his wife, Emma. And in verse 57, during the time that I was thus employed, I was put to the board with Mr. Isaac Hale of that place. It was there I first saw my wife, his daughter, Emma Hale. And then, of course, he marries her shortly after. I, just, just thoughts that perhaps you could share with us regarding the relationship that Joseph had with Emma or that Emma had with Joseph. Well, um, it was a very close relationship. They really were in love. And uh, she was his best friend. She, he told her his inner woes uh, more than he confessed them to anyone, even more than to uh, Hiram. And uh, she was very wise. She was a steadying hand. I, I just don't know that he could have made it if he didn't have her uh, to help him uh, through all his, his really terrifying experiences along the way. Thank you so much, Richard, for some of your insights on, on Joseph Smith's early history. Now maybe we can focus a little bit more on, on Section 2 and uh, the, the information that Joseph received from uh, his vision. Yes, yeah, so we're specifically going to talk, Richard, about the sealing power that Joseph receives and a promise of this restoration. Um, in section two, he talks about it in his own history in the 1838 version. But we're going to just ask you briefly, what stands out to you? What is important to you about section two? It's uh, what sometimes is called a performative text. That is, it calls for action. Just think of the huge effort that the church is making to collect names from all over the world, a really impossible task. Even before the days of Google search and computer analysis, we were out there struggling away, taking microfilms of records all around the world. And it's not only a huge effort, it's a huge thought to say we're going to unite the entire human family in all ages and all places into one great network, one great family of God. So I think this is a extremely potent uh, set of words. Thanks Thank for that. you, Richard. Uh, going back to something you said earlier, Richard, one of the things that I really like about uh, DNC too, my training, as I've mentioned before, is in early Christian literature. And there's an early Christian poet named Narsai. He lived in about the fifth century. And he also stressed the importance of, of thinking of salvation as a collective rather than individualistic endeavor. And he cautioned against what we might call uh, moral narcissism, which is focusing too much on our own selves as opposed to on how we can help others get to heaven collectively. And this is what he wrote. No one enters God's kingdom until he causes another to enter with him. For that is what this world demands of the one entering it. The doorkeeper will ask the one who approaches, is there someone with you? He will enter if there was someone and will remain outside if there is no one. I, I feel like Joseph Smith kind of gives us a, a same kind of vision, this idea that we should be thinking outside of ourselves, that uh, heaven is about kinship, it's about family, it's about relationship and collectivity. It's not about uh, so much about working out our own individual salvation, although it's a part of it, but it's recognizing that our own individual salvation is irrevocably tied to the salvation of other people. Well, I agree with that entirely. It's a really an affiliative uh, gospel. We're learning to do things together. It isn't just a single soul uh, finding its way uh, into the heavens. It's 
bringing us together. That's why I think uh, the church is so potent. Uh, Richard, if I may, I'm going to maybe speak a moment to that idea of this relationship as and associations, as well as the topic of family and temple. Until this time, there was no connection eternally for a husband and a wife. This section allows for women then to be able to enter the temple, receive the power of the endowment, be sealed to their husband, and together become gods and goddesses. And for me, it just opens the door for women that, um, that is not possible without the return of Elijah and the restoration of the priesthood through Joseph Smith. I, I love this section. There's so much more to it, but I love that it's an introduction of the Doctrine and Covenants to all that is temple in the restoration. Earlier, we talked about what is heaven going to be like. We don't know if there will be corporations or museums or universities or armies or all the other kinds of institutions we have in the world. What we do know is there will be families, and those families probably, it seems to me, will have to do much of the work. So we should think of the family not just a cozy little group gathered around the fireplace, but in an active organization that will have work to do and uh, tasks to accomplish and things to govern. We won't be just fathers and mothers, we'll be kings and queens. That sort of enlarges the role of the family and everybody who's in it. Thank you, Richard. It was a great insight. Yeah, thanks, Richard. So maybe we can we can go to the audience now and ask uh, how has the the restoration of these keys blessed you in your life? So my mom passed away several years ago and one of the last things that she wanted recorded was her testimony of Joseph Smith of the gospel and temples. And I and I think as I as I read this and as I hear some of the things that you're sharing, there's almost a wisdom that when our hearts are turned to them, it's not just looking at them with just the knowledge but really understanding who they were and why they were that way. Um, and I, and it made, this made me wonder if Joseph, if this is when his heart started turning to his own ancestors and learning some of the wisdom that, that many before him had learned. Yeah, Emily? As I've heard you speak about women and mothers, it just made me think of being here today with my own mother and now my daughter and how we're able to study the scriptures together and how my mother has been such a great influence on my daughter and her studying the scriptures. And it's just helped me to think more about um, how important those connections are and how important women are in teaching the scriptures and in continuing that knowledge. And so in I fact, think Emily, that's so great. President Eyring talks about the family proclamation. Then he said, many people misunderstand that term nurturing. And he said that the primary function of a woman who nurtures is to teach the children the gospel of Jesus Christ. Changing diapers is extremely important, and making food is important, and providing for their home is important. But the primary job of a woman who nurtures is to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Eve did for hers. And, and President, President um, Nelson says, we as women need to have the courage of Mother Eve. I mean, that's, that's telling us a lot, and especially when we're talking about, again, the eternal family. By no means are we to minimize the role of women. There, there can be no eternal life without husband and wife together, as we know. Thank you, Emily. It was a great comment. I could just say that uh, we sometimes think of the gospel as a set of ideas or a set of feelings. But I think the gospel is also a set of relationships. It's the fact that these things we believe in, Heavenly Father, the redemption, are all interwoven. And if that gospel is interwoven with all the invisible subterranean ties that exist between parents and children between brothers and sisters, then it really takes hold of our souls. 
then it, it's durable, it will last. I, I just think that's absolutely critical to the passage of testimony down through the generations. In fact, Richard, in verse three, as you know, and as we know as a, as a, as a group here, the Lord says, or, or in this case, I guess it's Moroni saying to Joseph, but the Lord is saying, if it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. Yeah, that unit is so foundational that it, it's necessary to uh, accomplish the purpose of creation itself, right? Yep. Yeah. Richard, thank you so much. Uh, we so appreciate your insights, your contributions, your study, your testimony. We can't, we can't thank you enough for what you have added to this show and to our discussion today. Thank you, Richard. I enjoyed it. You're doing a good work. Thank Appreciate you. It. Likewise. <laughs> Take care. Thanks. So the restoration of the sealing power we're going to find in section two of the Doctrine and Covenants. We're going to find it in other places as well. We have Malachi chapter four, verses five and six we could talk about. We also have more in other sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. But specifically, before we jump into it, let's look at a quote from President Nelson. He says the following, Eternal life made possible by the atonement is the supreme purpose of the creation. To phrase that statement in its negative form, if families were not sealed in holy temples, the whole earth would be utterly wasted. So in section two of the Doctrine and Covenants, it's only three verses, but this is, these are some powerful three verses. I absolutely love this section. In fact, it's fascinating when you go into the Book of Mormon, you see that it's a story about family. And you go into the Old Testament, it's a story about family. You go into the New Testament, it's a story about family. And you go into the Doctrine and Covenants, and what do we get? A story about family. So section two is a section that's going to bring us completely into the topic of family. And can you unpack that a little bit for me? What does it mean the whole earth would be utterly wasted? Yeah, so we look, about, we look at the purpose of the earth. We look at the purpose of God and the plan of salvation, the plan of happiness that was presented to us by our heavenly parents. The whole purpose of us coming down here is for God's children to have eternal life. If we as God's children do not have a possibility of receiving eternal life through the atonement of Jesus Christ, there's no purpose of us being here and there's no purpose of the earth being here. I mean, and that's pretty amazing when you think about it. The entire purpose of the earth is for us to be able to have families for eternity and to become like our heavenly parents who also have eternal families. Yeah. So if we go right into this section, we look, we look specifically at verse one and we see, behold, I reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet. Well, this is fascinating because we're talking about 1823, but it's not until 1836 that they are actually going to be able to receive these keys that, that Elijah is referring to. Mm -hmm. I actually think we have a, a video yeah. that, um, uh, with a question regarding this. Hi, we're the Jones family from San Antonio, Texas. And we have a question regarding this scripture found in Doctrine and Covenants, section two, verse two. And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. Sometimes as a woman, I feel like I'm left out or I'm not sure how I'm included in that scripture because it just talks about the children and the fathers. Can you explain to us how women are also blessed or receive those blessings and how we can include them in the discussion? So that's a great question and it, it actually makes me pretty giddy to answer it. <laughs> I love this topic I'll, and I I'll love the topic. I'll just let you take this one then. <laughs> okay. Are you feeling, I've got to yeah. stand up. So there are two different ways of looking at this their hearts turning to the fathers. The first is the Abrahamic covenant, which we've talked about before. When I talk to women and, and men together in this, I remind us that there is no Abrahamic covenant if there is no Sarah. It doesn't exist. 
There, there is no Abrahamic covenant going back to the eternities, especially the beginning here. There is no Abrahamic covenant if there is no Eve with Adam. There is no Abrahamic covenant if there is no heavenly mother with a heavenly father. And there will be no eternal covenant and there will be no Abrahamic covenant for any of us if there is no man and woman married together. So all the blessings that are associated with the Abrahamic covenant are given to women as well as to men. So that's, that's the first one. I think it's important that women and men understand that together. The second point is we're talking about another kind of father. So their hearts are turning back to their father. This is more family history. President Packer in his book, The Holy Temple, actually says in regards to Elijah and this ability, this promise made to their fathers, he says it would be better if it said the promises were made to their parents. It's a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. So in a sense, as we are talking about this, we are talking about our hearts are being turned to our parents. For some of us, it's turning to our father, for some to our mother, hopefully for both as we're trying to unite eternal families. These promises have everything to do with women. And, fr and frankly, none of these promises will affect men unless there is a woman involved and vice versa. It's an important topic. Thank you so much for that question. That was a great, that was a great question from our, our audience. And I hope that we as families and men and women together can understand that this is a unified gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a family gospel. So thank you again for these comments regarding the sealing power and the priesthood. For our last topic, I'm wondering if we can dwell a little bit on this language uh, in, in verse 33, Joseph Smith history. Uh, Joseph is telling the story. Moroni visits him. He calls me by name and says that he was a messenger sent from the presence of God and that his name was Moroni. And then this phrase right here, and he told me that God had a work for me to do. It really raised the question in my mind, what was it about Joseph Smith that God chose him from all the people? I mean, you have this young boy, inexperienced, not really well educated. What was it about his character um, that maybe would have led God to, to choose him as uh, his servant? Sam? So something I really love about the character of Joseph Smith that he's really diligent. If you look at verses um, 59 and 60, after he's given a charge to take care of the plates, he's told that he has to use all of his endeavors to preserve them, and then he would be protected. And I find that when we're diligent, the Lord is more likely to give us more to do. He's more willing to allow us to help other people. Yeah, and I love this idea that even though Joseph Smith may not have had many uh, inherent tools to consecrate, that the tools he did have, the knowledge he did have, the craftiness he did have, he was, he was all in. He consecrated everything he had to accomplish God's will, and I think God honored that, right? One thing that I find impressive about Joseph Smith is his desire to seek and to search for an answer. And after he receives all these revelations, after he seeks for them, he also mentions in verse 50, simply, I obeyed. He was willing and able to obey the Lord and continue to do the things that he was taught, which he sought for, because he wanted that. And once he receives that, just like we should, we should obey. Mm -hmm. And this was absolutely not just a, a part of his character in his early life, but throughout his life, even till his death. In fact, it was a perfect, it's a perfect tie into Jesus Christ. I mean, Christ is, is trying to find a prophet who clearly is obedient as Christ himself was pre-mortality. I will do the will of the Father on the earth. I do the will of the Father in all things on the cross. It is finished. I have done the will of the Father, inviting himself and he's back in with third Nephi with the, the people in the Americas. I am the light of the world. I am he who has done the will of the Father in all things. And then who does he call? A young boy who's willing to do the will of the Father and who does it at all costs. And both of them willing to give up their lives to be obedient to God. Mm -hmm. 
So this has been an excellent uh, discussion of, of Joseph Smith's character and what it means to be a good servant of God. And I would encourage you as you go through and, and you're reading through the Doctrine and Covenants and you learn more about the prophet, or I would just invite you to consider what you could do in your life to, to um, be the kind of person that God would want to reach out to to accomplish his work. We really appreciate you being here. We appreciate your comments, your questions, your testimonies. Thank you, it's been very insightful. It's been a good time together. It's nice to have Richard Bushman join us today. Mm -hmm. um, he really is such an insightful person. He has so much history and we have a lot of respect for him. And to those of you at home, thank you for your comments and questions and insights that you uh, shared with us via social media. We'd love to see you in the studio sometime, but if you can't be here in the studio with us, we hope you'll join us next week on Come Follow Up. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.